and nobody was really doing anything about it because it was like a silent voice. And I thought, well, you know what? Someone has to be the voice for that community. And I thought, why not me? Welcome to EcoLarm, the podcast where we talk about the major factors affecting the environment and explore what we can do to help. I'm your host, Bo. And I'm your host, Imani. And today we'll be talking to Jaima Lopez. Jaima is a PhD student at USC studying public policy and is here with us today to talk about his journey exploring environmental issues through film, public policy, and urban design. Thank you, Jaima, for coming on, and we're so happy to have you here today. Yeah, it's really great to be here with you guys. Um, you guys are doing excellent work, and I'm honored to you know to share my experience here on this podcast. So my name is Jaime Lopez. I am a fourth-year PhD candidate in uh, er- studying urban planning and development at the School of Price uh, Public Policy at USC. I am from Southeast Los Angeles, which uh, specifically for me means Paramount, California, right next to Long Beach and Compton for people who are not very familiar with that part of Los Angeles. And I focus on environmental justice and environmental planning and where that intersects with participatory planning. And a third component to uh, sort of my broad goals uh, incorporates storytelling, narratives, and framing I have an undergrad degree in filmmaking, and it's been very important for me throughout my life over the years to reconcile both my interest in filmmaking and my interests in academic research. Yeah, and I'd love for you to kind of dive into that a little deeper about like, what was those transitions like? Or was this like, kind of the plan along and your journey through the different areas that you're studying? It's been a very difficult path. I'll, I'll start by just saying that it's anytime that you're you're pursuing something that doesn't have a very linear, structured path, there's going to be a lot of challenges with that. Over the years, I've gotten a lot of feedback from people that basically gave me the sense that trying to do both filmmaking and academia were going to be enormously difficult. And that has been definitely the case. And for me, that has been exacerbated by a lot of personal challenges that I've had to go through through my life experience. So it's definitely been a difficult thing to do. But I'm also someone of the opinion that if you're not going to live your life in the way that you want it, then what's the point? And so I am going 100% in that direction. And even even if it's been a longer road, that's something I've been very committed to. So I graduated from film school at UCLA and was at the time thinking a lot about filmmaking as a medium through which a lot of education could happen, a lot of important information could be made available to wider audiences. And I was very much interested in pursuing writing, pursuing directing, But as it turned out, coming from extreme poverty and not really having a lot of really deep connections in the industry became very difficult to do that right out of college, as is the case in a lot of other industries, I'm sure, like politics comes to mind. To do a lot of these kind of internships that lead into opportunities that extend into careers, you a lot of times have to do that either for free or for very little money. And I was in a position to 
not really be able to do that. And so I had a lot of family responsibilities. I felt a lot of commitment to my family financially still at the time. And so going that route was not an option at that time. So the way that I sort of reasoned it in my mind was I got a job at a multimedia company that was still related to the film industry, although not in the way that I would have liked ideally at that time. And I was going to try to save money and basically figure things out from there. What happened is that a few years later, the Great Recession in 2008 happened and really derailed a lot of my broader goals um, for several years. And so I was laid off from a job in 2008, right at the beginning of the financial crisis, and really had to think hard about, at that point, being a few years away from college, what that meant for you know, wanting to pursue filmmaking and wanting also to continue my education and going into higher education. So at that time, I I got a job as an educational advisor with Johns Hopkins University and was working with students from Texas, Arizona, and all throughout California, students from historically underrepresented backgrounds, and found it to be one of the most rewarding professional experiences that I've ever had. I keep in touch with a lot of those students still to this day. Many of them have gone on to graduate from college and are pursuing a wide variety of of careers. And I was doing that work and feeling very much that that was sort of confirming to me that I wanted to be an educator. And it took some time for me to sort of figure out exactly what I would go to graduate school for. And I made a lot of uh, contacts with professors who I had had at UCLA and different people who I was meeting in my own professional world and found myself at a consulting firm a little bit after that, where I really got exposed to urban planning. I was writing proposals for this consulting firm that was working with public agencies that acquire land for public infrastructure projects. And that that is what really led me to understand what environmental impact reports were, what public hearings were for these types of public infrastructure projects. I got involved with the high-speed rail project at that time and sort of became my office's sort of internal expert on that project very early on. And that really opened my eyes to urban planning, transportation, environmental issues, housing, and how all of these things intersect. And it was a few years after leaving my job with Johns Hopkins and as I was working at this consulting firm that a professor at UC Irvine uh, one time during a lunch asked me if I had ever considered urban planning. And that's really what made it kind of feel like a real career option. And the more that I looked into it, the more that I reached out to people in the industry, the more that I read books about it, the more that I felt like the more that it felt right. And the more that it really brought together my interest in social justice, environmental issues, politics, you know, social issues. And first and foremost, I would say is that all of these things I was interested in as they relate to marginalized communities, which is the kind of community that I come from in Southeast LA. And I would say that when I think about academic topics, uh, urban issues that I find myself really gravitating towards, at the root of all of those things is that 
they have some kind of serious implication for marginalized communities. And I, a little bit after that, during that job, a little bit after that initial lunch with this professor, I decided that I would start applying to graduate school and continued going that way. And the, and the filmmaking aspect of it really didn't come into, really didn't happen until I found myself more so at USC uh, as a PhD student. And I could talk a little bit more about that. But in between my undergrad and my PhD, for financial reasons mostly, I wasn't really able to pursue projects that would enable me to kind of keep developing those filmmaking skills and to be able to keep telling stories through through the, that through that medium. So now as a PhD student, one of the things that I that one of the main reasons I decided to come to this school was because I knew it had the infrastructure to support filmmaking in general. I knew that it had people who understood the importance of intersectional work between academia and filmmaking. And sure enough, I took two semesters with a wonderful professor at the School of Annenberg, the School of Journalism, in documentary filmmaking. And it was through those two courses that I finished my first short documentary a couple of years ago. And it was um, through those courses that I also had a chance to do a second short documentary, both of which focus on environmental justice in Southeast LA. And I'm definitely intending to continue pursuing those types of intersections in, in filmmaking work as well. It's great to hear that you have the resources now. USC is definitely a big film school. So talking about environmental justice, in Southeast LA, what exactly is the region facing? Like, what are, what are the challenges? What are the marginalized communities and how is it kind of impacting their everyday life? If you could go more into that, I think that's very interesting because you have a background in obviously um, public policy, which is very, very crucial to addressing those issues, but also filmmaking, which is you're using as a medium to informing the public. So from that unique perspective, I guess, what are the challenges that, you know, the, this region is facing? Yeah, the, the challenges that this re- region is facing are multifaceted. On one hand, we are dealing with a toxic legacy, uh, physically speaking, the infrastructure that has been located along the Southeast Corridor going back pretty much a century at this point where you have a lot of heavy industry companies that located themselves along this corridor, along the railroad tracks that are still, many of them are still there to this day. So in terms of having that kind of presence so close to a lot of residential communities in this area, there's a lot of health impacts that come to mind first and foremost for me. So there's air pollution, the air quality in Los Angeles is 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 known for being seriously seriously harmful and I would say that it's especially the case in communities like this because of the added not just the amount of traffic and diesel trucks that go up and down the 710 freeway for example but also we have metal forging companies and a lot of other heavy industry that impacts the air quality that all what that also means is that 
it makes it really difficult from a policy perspective and from an urban planning perspective to just change that upon knowing that these land uses are harmful. It's very difficult legally to make that happen. And when I worked as a planning commissioner in the city of Paramount starting in 2018 and through 2020 of last year, I was able to witness firsthand how the planning department in the city and other people who are involved in local government are trying to sort of deal with that legacy and trying to make mitigation happen wherever it's possible. But I also was sometimes just very disheartened to see that the change is very slow and it's very much less than ideal. And basically what you have is planners who can who are limited with the amount of tools that they can use, like zoning ordinance text amendments, for example, that change the language in zoning that allows land use to change from a previously allowing heavy industry to no longer allowing it. But that doesn't really have an immediate impact when you're talking about companies that have been grandfathered into that land use. So it's very hard to change that. Um, so I would say in addition to the health impacts, there are these legal challenges still that are in many respects extremely difficult to solve. I think a lot of what I see also is more so in terms of the way that these issues are talked about in talking to a lot of community members and local activists. It's a lot of times, you know, this sort of conflict between community narratives and community experiences and embodied experience versus a more technocratic kind of narrative that comes from a more official institution like a local government. And so in the field of environmental justice, in the academic literature, a lot of what I've become interested in is, is sort of this, this push that there has been for communities to be able to have a voice that allows their narratives to co-produce knowledge going forward and to be factored into the solutions that are being pursued going forward. Because so many times in the past, and this has been very much a part of planning history for also about a century now, is this overemphasis on quantitative information, technocratic knowledge that a lot of times just completely overshadows community experiences. And one of the things that I would like to point out, which is a common misperception that happens, is that when people advocate for community narratives to be included into the co-production of knowledge, a lot of people misinterpret that to mean that you are essentially taking community narratives and replacing science, for example, which is not at all what environmental justice scholars are advocating. What they are merely asking for is that that community knowledge, viewing it as a type of citizen science, which is very much a term that is used to, that is applied to this kind of knowledge, that it's used together along with more technocratic knowledge and that those things can be in communication with each other. So that's something I'm really interested in and, and have read a lot about in my getting ready for like my qualifying exams last year and even in the early stages of my dissertation. 
that is the intersection that I focus on quite a bit. So taking a step back, what is environmental justice? What does it mean to you just for our audience to those who haven't heard the term before? Environmental justice traditionally means that there is disproportionate harm on marginalized communities in terms of the environment. So when you look at the history, for example, of toxic facilities, they are disproportionately, in a spatial sense, located where marginalized communities are. There are a lot of scholars that have written more recently about taking environmental justice, what they refer to as environmental justice 1.0, and taking it into like a 2.0 sort of era, where you're going beyond merely identifying this disproportionate sort of this disproportionate impact in the spatial sense, and talking more about incorporating these communities into decision making. So you're going beyond sort of this distribution paradigm that was very much more so part of the earlier generation of environmental justice research. And now talking about not just identifying this disproportionate impact, which has been widely written about, but also how do we transition more so into actually having communities have a realistic impact on decisions being made about their own environment. So in a general sense, environmental justice is, you know, it's dealing with how these communities are being harmed by uh, all sorts of different toxic um, elements uh, coming from, you know, heavy industry, but also, you know, from the traffic in the area, from waste facilities in the city of Vernon in northern Southeast LA, the Exide battery plant was relatively recently shut down. And so what happens there is that you have this toxic facility that is shut down, and that is a victory in a sense. But then we enter into another challenge, which is the cleanup phase. And what companies, not just in this kind of industry, but in many industries are really good at a lot of times is declaring bankruptcy as a way to sort of absolve themselves from the responsibility and accountability that comes with having to do cleanup. And so now you have a community that not only has been impacted for years and years and years, but now they have this cleanup situation where, you know, they're trying to figure out how is this going to be paid for and how is this going to happen going forward? So it feels a lot of times like these sort of challenges lead to new challenges upon new challenges. And in that way, talking about climate justice and talking about environmental justice can be very, feel very defeating to a lot of people who are sort of immersed in this world. But I think it's important to just continue to make progress and to continue to push forward and, you know, just focus on one challenge at a time, you know, because that just feels more manageable than trying to obviously tackle something that is just very dimensional and, and very complex. Yeah. And then like going off of that theme of moving forward, actively working, obviously you've had, uh, we talked a lot about your academic experience and a little bit about the city planning commission, but I guess in your experience, having both of those kind of at the same time, how have you felt like what you're learning translates into city government and 
I guess, what might be some challenges or misconceptions people may have? I think that sometimes the misconceptions that people have, it have to do with how government works. I think very rightfully so, a lot of people in marginalized communities are very frustrated with a lot of what they see. And so the the immediate reaction is to want things to be different. But a lot of times those conversations might end there just in the desire to for, for having things to be different, but not really going as far as to really thinking about like what, ex- how exactly does this structure work? How exactly can we make things be different? And there's, I think a lot of lack of knowledge of how these local institutions work. And that is where I think a lot of, a lot of, very difficult conversations happen at the local level. When I when I say this, for example, affordable housing comes to mind, where you have people in a community who have their own conception of what affordable housing is. They think about, for example, projects, right? Housing projects from past decades, and they have this sort of like stigma associated with them. And so when somebody in a government institution is trying to, for example, talk about some affordable housing opportunities for their community, their reaction is to say, we don't want this in our community because of all these different negative perceptions that they might have. But what I think a lot of that comes down to is that we have to have a sort of agreed upon set of definitions of what things mean, how exactly these structures are are you know, how do they work in reality and the procedures that have to sort of be looked at for things to change, because a lot of these things cannot change overnight. And so just being more specific about and more realistic about like what needs to happen, I think would be very helpful in creating more productive conversations between local governments and their communities. And when I say realistic, I don't mean at all to say that we have to be realistic and therefore satisfy ourselves with some small changes. I think we should always be pushing for sort of this bigger vision that we have for the future. But the reality is is that we also have to be somewhat knowledgeable about how local government works. And a lot of times what I experience is people speaking at, giving their public comments at a city council meeting, for example, and speaking in in very emotional terms. And I think that that makes it difficult to have that conversation because the local government will then sort of push back and can be, and I've seen this happen, be very dismissive of that community because they sort of write them off as being purely emotion, emotional and not being very informed. And I think that that's really unfortunate because those emotions, for one, are very much justified in many respects. But again, there isn't that appreciation for knowledge that is not coming from a technocratic, more commonly legitimized status of some sort. And I think where a lot of the friction, that's this is where a lot of the friction happens and what keeps us from being able to have more productive, you know, conversations about what can be done going forward. And so I think that when I peel back a lot of the layers about environmental justice and and urban planning and local government, for me, a lot of this comes down to how issues are framed and how are they being talked about to begin with. 
because so much of what determines what kind of solutions are pursued in the future is very much based on how things are framed from the outset, from the very beginning. And it then becomes important to also ask ourselves, who is doing that framing? Who is taking these issues and sort of telling the story of what these issues are? Because if it's only a local government doing that with its own apparatuses and its own infrastructure to distribute information, then that is problematic in my mind because they're going to have a monopoly about what the situation actually is. And they're also going to alienate a lot of people in the community who might feel that their voices are never going to be heard because of this infrastructure that they're up against. So I look at things very much at that level. And there is so much more work to do for me to learn about so many of the technicalities of not just in a legal respect, but also in terms of regulatory uh, issues and economic issues that I will continue to learn about, but I start there. That's sort of my initial entrance into just about any issue that I find myself studying. I guess keeping that in mind with the framing, and it seems like the big conflict here is communication between the two groups. So I guess leading into your current documentary and past ones, how have you brought that framing, keeping that in mind into the way that you do your documentaries? Yeah. So I think that what I focused on with my two documentaries so far is to choose people who I know have run for local government in Southeast LA and who have been inspired to run for government because largely because of the environmental issues and the environmental crisis that their communities have been dealing with and giving a platform to these individuals to be able to talk about their life experience in these communities and to talk about how that led to them running for government i think is i think it's important to hear those stories i think they can be inspiring and it is not meant to be a documentary that's sort of operating sort of on this very high level of just giving you factual information about what has transpired. It's very much more so meant to be more personal in allowing these individuals to tell their story. And I mean, for me, this goes back to just the importance of people's narratives and community narratives and being able to throw that into the mix with other more official documents, if you will, or sort of like official summaries of what has been happening in these communities. And so I think that I would like to continue to sort of pursue projects that that not only make people aware about different environmental crises, but also leaving people with very uh, accessible personal stories that they can hopefully identify with or at least learn from. And that's mostly, I think, at the heart of what I was trying to do with these first two pieces. Has there been any major challenges when making these documentaries? I imagine it's probably very different than what you learn in a classroom setting in undergrad at UCLA versus actually doing it. Yeah, uh, so one the, the obvious challenge that I had with my second documentary was the pandemic. The, the very, that was first and foremost, a huge challenge because I had to basically step away from the project for 
almost a year and was not able to interview anyone in person and was not able to get access to the equipment that I needed to be able to do some some shoots. So there was that, of course. But aside from that, I think that with the individuals who I was working with, these are individuals who are raising families, who are working full-time jobs, and are also involved in local government. And so finding the time from, you know, asking them to take the time from their personal lives and, and professional lives to, you know, share their story and to be part of this documentary was often challenging along the way. And I was, I had to be very patient and flexible and understanding that they had, especially during the pandemic, a lot of other more immediate uh, concerns that they had to deal with. So I would say that that was a challenge, right? But Aside from the pandemic, if this were happening under, quote unquote, more normal circumstances, I think that the challenge that I see, and this also goes back to the first documentary that I made, is that a lot of individuals who are running for city government in Southeast LA are not, are not necessarily versed in planning per se, right? Like they have not, they're not really students of urban planning. I had one exception in my second documentary. One of my, one of my subjects was a policy graduate student at USC. And so he was able to talk about some of that throughout his interviews. But for the most part, you know, these are people who are working as teachers, who are working as mechanics, you know, wide variety of different kind of work that very easily can be, again, dismissed by people in local government who don't see what they have to say as valuable. And I think that that was also a challenge I had if I put on my journalistic hat and wanting to really be fair to their story is to focus on aspects of what they were sharing that I think really spoke to like the core issues that they felt concerned about um, without, without having them seem like they were not qualified in some way to talk about these issues. So I was very much caring to really do justice to the core of what their concerns were. And even if it didn't use the kind of language or if it didn't use the kind of articulation that someone coming from like a more professional planning or political realm might have. Yeah, because I think oftentimes those authentic stories really get to the root of it, even if they don't come from like a very formal background. And I think that's the case for most people because, you know, they're the ones living it. So absolutely. And I think a lot of times, like when I say these things, it's also important to point out that that doesn't mean these people are not intelligent. That doesn't mean that these people are not aware of their environments in very sophisticated ways. It's just that they may not have had a career that is immersed in using the kind of terminology that people at a local government level might respect, right? Um, Although they do say that they respect all public comments and all voices that come to the table, so to speak. But again, I think that I've seen in my experience, a lot of those voices can be very easily dismissed, you know, very quickly if they don't align with 
the way that a local government might perceive these issues. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess just to kind of wrap things up, if you have any advice, and this can be from the policy perspective, the film perspective, whatever direction you want to take that, if anyone's interested in anything you've said in this episode, do you have like any advice for them to get involved in whether it be planning or film or the intersection of all of those? Yeah. So I think if you, for one, I think my advice, if you live in a marginalized community and you're growing up where you know that there are environmental harms happening, I would say that one step that you can take is to become involved with more of these community organizations that I've seen, you know, come into existence over the years that are fighting these battles and being in community with these local efforts that are trying to sort of lead the charge against environmental injustices. I would say that's always a great, a great step to be in community with people who are doing that work. You're going to learn a lot doing that. And you're also going to feel empowered and feel like you're actually taking steps to changing things at the local level. I think aside from that, if possible, if, you know, sort of your circumstances allow, I would say making time for reading more about environmental issues. There's a lot of great books. There's a lot of great research. I understand a lot of people will not necessarily read academic research, but there's definitely a lot of efforts I think out there that are trying to make academic research more accessible to wider audiences. Um, For example, there's a great podcast coming out of UCLA that is taking housing policy and having episodes where they break down different academic work and make it available to in layman terms for people to be able to understand that. So I, I see more of that work happening and that's very encouraging. So I would say if you're interested in understanding more about environmental justice, looking for those resources, because I think that they exist. But also I would say, as I say that, that there is still a lack of, especially in Southeast Los Angeles, a lack of more community involvement still. I I see that specifically in the city of Paramount. I I don't think that there is enough activity as I would like to see. And although that's getting better, I think that, I, I think that that's still frustrating. And so to the extent that there are groups that you can reach out to in your neighborhood, I would say do that, inform yourself, educate yourself as much as possible. But you know, you may be in a position where you can be the person who starts that kind of community organization or that kind of community group. I think a lot of things start with just conversations. And if that's all that your community can have to bring people together and to talk about what is happening, and then from there deciding what you as a group want to do about it, I, I would always encourage that kind of spirit. But I would say that in Southeast LA, there's, it's still an area that within just research in general in Los Angeles, it's a very under-researched, underappreciated part of the city. And that's part of the reason why I decided to focus my two short documentaries on this part of the city, because I think there's a need for that. And why my dissertation will focus on this region of the city as well is because there really are no, that I see books or you know, substantial research that has been done on 
really addressing environmental justice issues specifically in this region. There's a lot of work that focuses sort of on the region or the county at the county level or very, very specific toxic sites. But as a region, Southeast LA still needs a lot of research. And I think that that's something that I hope to contribute in my career. Is there any way our audience can find, if you don't know about the second documentary yet, that's fine, but even just the first documentary where they can maybe see it? Yeah, so the so I would say that the first documentary, the, the best way to look at that is to find, there's an organization called Impact. There, Impact is basically a documentary series that is in that is the product of a partnership between Spectrum Cable and USC School of Journalism. And so they have their own Facebook page where they, you know, promote a lot of different student work that's being produced out of USC that focuses on short documentaries made by USC students. So my first documentary is available there. It's called Hex Chrome and the Community. If you also Googled it, you could probably find the YouTube link for it. I don't have a more formal location for it yet. The second documentary will air on Spectrum Cable on that Impact series in the next few months. And so when I have more information about that, I'd be happy to to share that with, with this group. And yeah, those are those are the two the two ways to to find that at the moment. All right. Awesome. So with that, um, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciated it. I think there was a lot to be learned about the intersection of film and public policy. And I learned a lot. I don't know about you both, but I had a great time. So thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Okay, that'll wrap up our episode for today. For more information on EcoAlarm and resources on topics covered in this episode, follow us at EcoAlarm Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thank you guys so much for listening. Tune in every other Friday, and we'll see you next time. Bye.